You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Lilith St. Crow has written more than 55 books in genres including science fiction, fantasy, paranormal, romance, romantic suspense, humor, and nonfiction. Her new novel is Springs Arcana. This is the first of two books in the Dead Gods Heart duology, and the second book coming out in August is The Salt Black Tree. Thank you for joining me, Lilith. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, this is such a wonderful book, and I want to start in, in a weird place about it because this book made me think about how humans invent things. You know, we invented, you know, the we invented cities, houses, nuclear reactors, ballistic missiles. We, we invented all that. Why not gods? Yeah, exactly. And that gets me back. I was thinking about that. That we, among the, the, I think, arguably, the very first thing we invented were the gods. Before Moonwatcher hit, picked up that rock and hit the other ape on the head and invented the first weapon, he, he and his friends had already been talking about the gods that they had created. Gods are our earliest invention. Yeah, gods and digging sticks to to um, dig things up to eat, and uh, I'm I'm of two minds about this. I I think that there are two kinds of ways that humans invent gods. I think there are the great forces of the universe: life, death, thunder, fire, and we have to come to some sort of accommodation with those big, scary things. So we personalize them, we anthropomorphize them. And I think that's one avenue of how gods come to be. And the other avenue is just we invent things to answer questions. Uh, something that I came across recently was a, a comic strip with with somebody coming to God and saying, I called out for you. Why didn't you answer? And God saying, oh, oh no, no, it's my job to ask the question. The answering is all yours. So that, that sort of, you know, I wish I'd thought of this or, or come across it before I'd started writing this book. But there's always the next book for that one. You know, too, th- this book reminded me that the kind of the myths in the, of, of the world, the ways in which humans use gods are constantly updated throughout civilization. And they're, but in a sense, they're always the same. I was reading this and I was thinking, you know, the first kind of stories that really captivated my imagination were the Greek myths, which are among the first written down versions of you know literature, fantasy literature in particular, and the way that the humans inter- used gods to talk about their own interactions in a way that they couldn't talk to one another about them. <laughs> now, aren't the Greek gods wild? They are just bonkers. You know, the thing about the Greek gods is that they're not faceless, faceless things, faceless forces. They're absolutely human. My daughter and I, which my daughter is a great fan of, uh, oh, there's this this web tune, I think, about Hades and Laura Olympus. She's a great Laura Olympus fan. And, and she's like, yeah, the Greek gods are, some of them are kind of dicks. Oh, darling, all of them are dicks. You know, I, th- I think the only, nope, nope, can't even say that. They're all dicks. So I think the, the great evolution in Greek myth and Greek gods is just letting these, these gods just be dicks. One of the things about the Greek gods is they they have very human emotions, mm-hmm. a, a, and I think that, um, for me at least, that is a way of us like taking our emotions outside of ourselves and saying, "Well, see, look how stupid that looks," and and pointing at that thing outside yourself rather than the person next to you or yourself. <laughs> 
Well, the, the drawback in that is there are people who are attracted to that kind of behavior and, and they, they take it the opposite way. Well, if the gods do it, then I can do it. It's fine. So I, I think in a very real sense, humanity gets the gods it deserves. <laughs> and, and Sorry to say it, but there it is. There you go. Uh, I don't disagree. And I think that for me, one of the things that is most interesting about this book it is the way you play with that and use that whole, you know, um, potential mythology. So let's talk about the this uh, first book in the in the series, Springs Arcana. It be begins in a rather modest place. We have Nat and her 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 mother Maria. They live in a small yellow house, and, and Nat is a you know a somewhat average uh, teenage girl. It and the only thing that's slightly odd about her, and this is not that odd, is you know she talks to cats. Well, I mean, we all as kids we all talk to cats. So I'd like you to talk about using, uh, you know, a very American setting girl, her mother living in a small house, to explore this huge world that unfolds around her in the novel. Well, part of that is just storytelling. You need to give the reader or the listener a way into the story. And if you're going to introduce them to, you know, outlandish things like a god of gangsters or a god of cowboys with a, a horse that can turn into a motorcycle or, you know, the the goddess of, of prostitutes who's, who's a... a she comes from a long line of other goddesses changing as they move through time and location. If you're going to do that, you have to start somewhere small. You have to teach the reader to trust you. So you start, when you start a story, you have to start with the place where the reader can trust you and go on from there. And uh, there's also a, a story-based reason why Nat is a, there is a reason why Maria has raised Nat that way. One of the things that the Dead God's Heart duology is, as well as a, an examination of, of gods and metaphysical questions, is at its heart, it's a story about a girl with a voracious and outright abusive mother. And how do you deal with that? It's a, a metaphor, you could say. <laughs> Well, oh no! Yeah. I've started. I've said metaphor five minutes into this. <laughs> that well, that works for me because I think that for me, the power of fantasy and science fiction is the idea of externalization. This uh, of putting things outside yourself, so you can talk about. I mean, uh, a story that's just about uh, in set entirely in the real world about an abusive mother as abusive as. Uh, Maria is might be fairly difficult to read whereas this is very yeah. much is very in, engaging a and this takes a lot of its uh mythology and, and the the uh actual even the current uh society it deals with in uh immigrants from uh, quote the old country and I'd mm -hmm. like you to talk about developing that vision of the old country having been transplanted, which is, you know, an essential part of this whole story and I, of America's story, too. I didn't really know that was going to happen when I started thinking about this story. The story has been kicking around in the back of my head for a long time. It was only when I started writing, and I think I was halfway through the second book before I realized, oh, yes, this is also an immigrant story. This is also, you know, people come to America and they they bring other things with them, which makes everything more wonderful. You know, the more diversity, the better. There's also a tremendous sense of dislocation because a lot of these people are fleeing from something. So they bring their cuisine, they bring their ways of dress, they bring their ways of interacting with each other, and they bring their stories and their gods. And so Maria is an immigrant and Nat is her daughter. She's a, she's a first generation. So part of their relationship is the tension that are between those two types of people. You know, there's there's a, several family dynamics that are kind of culture specific whenever you have somebody coming to a new country and then they have a child who adjusts better than they do to it. I, I think that the uh, 
immigration story in this is really interesting because humans are always migrating. There's this idea that we're all just going to stay in one place, but that's absolutely not what the human race ever, 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 ever does. We always move from one place to another, wherever things look like they might be, actually be or, or seem better. Mm-hmm. So talk about translating this whole, the idea of human migration and and bringing with it this kind of surreal supernatural era. I think that, you know, the... Uh, for me, at least, the experience of the supernatural in this book is is really intimately tied with kind of uh, the surreal, and as opposed to you know like a ghost story or a vampire story, where these things are kind of exist. Yours is really slides in and out. It's a little um, acid trippy, I would say. Thank you. <laughs> that's that's the effect that I was going for. Uh, so imagine that you were Nat's age. Imagine that you're, you know, early twenties. You know, you've been working all your life. You're you're in this this family, this family dynamic, and all of a sudden you find out the world is not the way you thought it was. All of us have that that moment in early adulthood where everything that we've depended on has just whacked away from underneath us, and you you have to go forward. That's a very human thing. So really, it's it's not a it's not a big, huge thing. It's something that happens to every human being, and we have to tell stories to get through it. We are the stories that we tell ourselves, and gods turn into the stories we tell ourselves, or they're born from them. It's it's kind of oh, i'm I'm hopelessly muddling what I wanted to say. And so, no, you're being per- perfectly clear because what you want to say is <laughs> it's, it's embracing the contradiction. Yeah, it's it's contradictory and it's ambiguous, which is what human beings are. You know, nation states are a relatively late invention in human history. We had the city states before, and we had we had broader sort of people living in the same place do the same things kind of and naturally we have wars which is how you, you know, get resources to continue all that but nation states and the ideas of hard borders and that are actually relatively late in human history and the inventions that make those things possible the technology of border crossings of railways of you know that's relatively late in human history too so instead of having the organic wandering of gods slowly as people walk from one place to the the, the next we have these huge uprootings and dis- dislocations and then you're plonked down somewhere else which is traumatic for the people why wouldn't that be traumatic for their gods as well you know the, an old god in a new country you know, the accepted methods of getting favors from this God might not work anymore. What do you do? You make a new God. Humans create things to fill their needs. And one of the needs that humans have that's deep and intrinsic is saying to something, you know, outside of oneself, help me out here, buddy. (laughs) I'm struggling here. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. Now, uh, Early on, we we learned that that Nat's mother is Maria is sick. She's in the hospice with cancer, but and she wants her daughter to to seek a favor from somebody, so she sends her to this uh, skyscraper. This is in a chapter you call the Tower, and mm-hmm. I, one of the first things I thought about this book is it it, it and essentially also involving God. I never stupid and it just barely realizes now the book is called springs arcana so yes there is some tar tarot sim- symbology happening oh yes in this book <laughs> because you get a cup and a knife eventually mm-hmm. so talk about uh interlacing uh the tarot with the uh religious implications you know the the transport of the gods i think that's a really fascinating idea and it taps into you know as a reader, you don't have to know everything about tarot to feel like the the questions and the uh, the, the nebulous power of those symbols. Yeah. Well, so when you write a book, 
the reader only gets the very, very tip top of the iceberg. The thing about that is there has to be a vast mass under the surface that lifts that up into, you know, above the waterline where the reader can see it. So in any book, there's a lot of underpinnings and different themes and psychological, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual energy that the writer puts into it in order to lift all that stuff up so that the writer can get to it. And part of what lifted springs are kind of part of what lifted this duology up is that I've I've been reading tarot for years and tarot is actually very good divination to to find out you know what the gods think you know fate is a god and what you're doing with tarot is asking for something else whether it's the precognitive faculty or an, an outside agency like a god or a passing spirit or whatever to tell you what the hell is going on or what to expect so I, I didn't actually realize that that it was I was using Arcana more in the the old sense of um, items of great power used by by something not uh, not the tarot sense mm-hmm, but right. uh, it works either way I didn't even know I'd done that that's marvelous when she gets into this tower she she meets somebody who's called Baba she at first she goes to a corporate office. Mrs. They, De Winter, which is my Daphne du Maurier <laughs> joke. <laughs> Very good. And, and uh, well, for me, um, this took me straight back to, this scene took me straight back to 1973. And because uh, she's at, at the cor- uh, corporate office of the Yaga Corporation, and the first thing I thought about was in 1973, uh, ABC was broadcasting live concerts at 11 o'clock at night, and the local station where I lived in LA, uh, KLOS, was was streaming audio, so that if you're a complete dweeb like I was in, in at such time, you could record, you know, the bands they were playing. And one of the bands they played was Emerson Lake and Palmer. Who were doing a piece of the of adapted classical music called Pictures and Exhibition, and one of the most memorable. Stravinsky. Yeah, that, well, I, I, no, Rimsky Korsakoff. Oh, that's right, Korsakoff. I get the two of them mixed up yeah, all the time. Easily. Don't even ask me about Mendelssohn. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, one of the pieces in that uh, in that uh, performance was called The Hut of Baba Yaga. <laughs> so immediately, you know, I I would went to look that up, and this is such an interesting myth. Tell us all about Baba Yaga, and, and that myth has had kind of a comeback of late because I, I think I've been reading there's someone else or something else that involves this, and I thought, wow, why is that such such a so popular what's going on well, here there's there's a number of reasons uh, this is not even my first baba yaga book my first baba yaga book was rattlesnake wind so <laughs> there you go uh, i i hope this does not mean that the lady herself is taking an interest in me because when she takes an interest in you things get things get real real fast so baba yaga is from Sl- slavic folklore she is a, a spirit of of winter she is also uh in a lot of Germanic and Teutonic myths, we have the old witch in the woods, who is a, a profoundly, a profoundly negative, mostly um, caricature or, or stereotype. But in Slavonic folklore, there's there's Baba Yaga in her her hut in the woods, uh, her chicken legged hut. She her house is a, a mortar and pestle, and she can you know by swinging the pestle she can fly through the air, and. If you're polite to her, if you follow the fairy tale rules, she can actually be a powerful ally to you. But if you don't, if you're a, if you're a dickwad to her, then you know hell hath no fury like Baba Yaga, who has been inconvenienced. So there's a number of reasons. I think there's been a, a resurgence of, of Slavonic folklore in, in pop culture in American pop culture. Some of it from the John Wick movies where he's addressed as Baba Yaga. Some of it from uh, Marina Warner, who's been doing a, a lot of work in, in bringing Slavic folk tales out. And uh, 
my own interaction with with my recent interaction with Baba Yaga started on Twitter. There was a folklorist, I think Hungarian folklorist, who I was following. Who she she would put up links to these amazing Baba Yaga stories, and the storyteller in me was like, "Yes, that's juicy. Let's go for that." So I swallowed them all whole, digested them for a while, and then Rattlesnake Wind came out. And then when I started to actually write the Dead God's Heart in earnest because the publisher said, yes, you really need to do this now. <laughs> that lights a fire under even the most recalcitrant writer. Uh, there she was. And she had melded with a few very American things. You know, Baba Yaga is, uh, you know, she's a corporate woman. She's She has her office. She has her, her little park with the statues down below. Did you get to the statues? Oh, good. I, had, I was talking to a writer friend of mine, Curtis Chen, and he was like, yeah, the scene with the statues that you, Lily, you did not have to do that, which is the deepest compliment a fellow writer can give me. Well, you know, one of the things that I really loved about that too was that in that scene is where you introduce the character Dima, who is just absolutely a delight. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I dislike so him. I dislike him, but he's very, he's wonderful. Exactly. Yeah. He's not likable, but he is an amazing character. And this makes me think about, you know, a, a challenge that you create for yourself in this novel, which is to give God's character arcs, which is, it, it, you know, you're messing with some big stuff here. Oh, yeah. Oh, there, uh, There is a scene in the second book. I think it's in the second book where Nat is talking to the cold lady who's who's basically a personification of of death and uh nat makes a, a comment about change and i think it's the cold lady who looks at her and says what do you think we are so what is a character arc but change and what is what is a god but but change so it's really not not out of i just had to follow the story they uh the the gods were doing all the work i just tagged along with my little stylist you know okay all right what happened then okay so much of being a writer is getting to the place where you trust the work the characters will tell you what needs to happen and you you learn especially after a number of finished works to obey that little internal, this thing is important. I can't tell you why that yet, but just put it in there. And so I just roll my eyes and put it in. And then, you know, years later or months or years later, somebody asked me, oh, I noticed you did X, Y, Z in the book. And that was really deep and thematic. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, it was. I guess it was, wasn't it? And I'm like, no, I'm just, I'm just stenographer saying this. You know, uh, one of the things about this book is as you read it, I, you know, by the time I finished it, I'm thinking, I'm going to want to go back and reread this because there's a lot of stuff I can tell now that when I first encountered it was really, you know, was going to speak to something that would happen 200, 300 pages later. And so I was wondering how much of that was planned. Did you go back and, and uh, retrofit uh, some of the stuff you originally wrote? Or did this, is this pretty much as you wrote it? I generally don't do a lot of retrofit. Sometimes if the editor tells me this isn't clear, uh, I, I will go in and, and do things you know, to make things clearer, because one of the the push pull between me and a good editor is it's so clear inside my head. I understand what everybody's doing, but that doesn't get beamed directly into the the reader's head. So the editor's like, "There's a hole here. There's there's a hole over here too." So I I don't do a lot of retrofitting because in most cases the the story is whole and complete inside my head, or I know that I'm following the through line. And as long as I follow the line and the path and I obey those little, this is important pokes on the shoulder from my own personal muse, then it will all be okay. I cannot count the number of times that I have gotten two books, three books into a series and been like, oh, so that's why that was important. Great. Yeah. You know, uh, as I read this uh, novel, one of the things I liked is the way that uh, she gets in deeper and deeper uh, as things go. Things get weirder and weirder. So how fine a control did you have on that weird dial? Because, at, you know, 
and it's interesting too the way you you play with genre because some parts of this seem you know firmly in the the fantasy or urban fantasy and other parts you just go and it's like right into the horror <laughs> yeah sometimes i play game with my games with myself uh for example, I was writing a, a Robin Hood in Space serial for my subscribers, and I was starting to get nasty letters about how I was ruining science fiction and ruining Star Trek and everything. And so I was like, okay, well, I'll put an entire chapter of Star Trek references in here just because I can. So some of that is just the, the games that I play with myself, and other parts of that are, you know, stories are organic, books and and short stories are organic to me they're living creatures so they develop according to their own rules and much like raising my children uh, my job is to get out of the way and let these things be the amazing things that they need to be so it's it's a a paradox between control of one's craft in order to get this across and play with the tropes and play with the genre and submission to the process where I'm following the the trail of breadcrumbs through the forest and hoping that Baba Yaga's in a good mood when I get there. So that balance and that paradox is, for me, at the heart of creative work, no matter what you're creating. You know, too, uh, what I was thinking about was this incredible scene. There's a party scene. <laughs> oh, yes, the party. <laughs> you're not the only one. You remember my friend Curtis? He was like, well, you did not have to go so hard. I was like, yes, yes, I did. Yes, yes I did. It was really fun, I think, too. And as a reader, I'm wondering, you know, when you write this, do you try to experience it as a reader as you write it? Because it's like, you know, there's, you, you kind of, for a while, you're reading it and you're going, okay, this is, this is odd, this is strange. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Something... Well, I, I kind of generally know what's coming. Uh, I am surprised by some things on this. Like uh, the, the Lois Lane and Superman appearance in there really surprised me. And the, uh, the scout from To Kill a Mockingbird is in there. And that surprised me. But I have the great good fortune to actually be writing it. So I know kind of what's going on. So it, yeah. I, but it's interesting you should ask that because I do feel very much with any character. I So much of this is like a whole body hallucination for me. I, I feel what they feel. I understand what they're going through, uh, which has its, its good sides and its drawbacks. So I don't get the reader reaction to it. On the other hand, I get to experience it first and experience it whole body, uncut and unfiltered. So th there's a trade-off. <laughs> it's all trade-offs. <laughs> you know, this is something, brings up something that I've long thought, uh, that there's a real deep and intimate connection between what's called method acting and writing. That that the difference between the two is really that you write it down and they act it out. Well, I think both are, are giant exercises in empathy. And, and I think that's why nasty people often do not write good books. <laughs> so, I mean, there have been nasty people who have written towering works of literature. And those works have been, you know, after a few years, we're like, oh, that's really problematic. But I think that writing and method acting are both extended exercises in empathy, which has its good sides. You know, if, if you pour yourself into a, a, another person's skin like that, it can teach you a lot about being human and being kind. On the other hand, there's a very real risk of losing yourself or of just doing all sorts of nasty things to yourself. There are method actors who take it too far, and there are definitely writers who take it too far. You know, uh, one of the things about this book, too, is this is a classic American road novel. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> and I was, you oh. know, thinking, you know, the road novel is really interesting in its adaptability. You might have On the Road by... Jack Kerouac, which is one kind of road novel, classic mm -hmm. American, 
great writer. I mean, this is in the literary canon. On the other hand, you might have uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy, also a great novel <laughs> oh, by yeah, a classic <laughs> So talk about, uh, you know, taking, turning uh, The Road novel into, uh, you know, a, a, I guess a magic realism type uh, A Road novel is is magic realism at its heart. You're going somewhere else. And a road novel doesn't work unless you have the the freeways, the ways to get there. Um, and it's a peculiarly American genre because we did have the massive freeway project and we did have the you know, people getting in cars and just going. So, But it's also, it works very well as a metaphor for getting to adulthood. So it, it works as a, a great metaphor for me because it is basically a hero's journey, just updated and put on pavement. You know, I never thought about that. But yeah, it is a, a journey to adulthood, which is, of course, what Nat is right in the midst of. Yeah, there, there's a moment where, where somebody says to Nat, you know, this wants to eat you. It will eat you. And she says, you know, I was a teenage girl in America. You think I don't know that? <laughs> You know, uh, as a one of the things too is that when you create a road novel, you can in your genre you can turn the vehicles are also characters. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Well, I I love muscle cars, and that's why Dima why Konietz has a muscle car. He just he had to partly because he's also my homage to John Wick. I'm a huge Keanu Reeves fan, and I, I love John Wick. Though not as much as my daughter, she is the biggest John Wick fan ever. But uh, yeah, Dima, Dima John Wick has his car, and so when when Dima sauntered into my head, he was like, "Yes, yes, the car, it's mine." <laughs> you know, too, um, as a writer. Could you talk about like just deciding, you know, when you're creating this book, one of the most important parts of this kind of writing is are the rules. You know, every these the, all supernatural novels, all science fiction, all fantasy really operates by creating rules. And part of this book is a journey of discovering, Nat's journey of discovering what these rules are and how they apply to her which just occurred to me is what the journey we all make as we grow up and have to try to figure out, mm -hmm. you know, what, what, how adults are supposed to act. Yeah. The, the thing about uh, writing, especially magic, where a lot of writers fall down in, in magic or fantasy is that their, their magic doesn't have a cost. Everything has to have a cost, whether it's in physical energy or emotional pain or or mana or whatever. When you are writing, when you are playing with with magic and fantasy, it has to have a cost. And if there's there's no cost, if there's an outlier, say in in Stephen Donaldson's, uh, is it Stephen Donaldson, the White Gold trilogy, where the the guy had the ring of white gold, and he was it's a portal fantasy. He's translated into a different world, and since this this item is not something that's natural to the world, it has it breaks the rules. So. You have to have the rules. If you break them, you have to be able to break them in a specific way, which is, again, creativity writ large. You internalize the rules. So, and achieving mastery is knowing the rules so that you know how to break them. So, and a book has to have its own internal consistency, it has to make sense. You have to know these people so well that you can predict what they're going to do. And you cannot have them behave uncharacteristically without a goddamn good reason. And part of that is just practice, learning your craft and putting all that together as a, a new writer and then as a middle writer and then going on to whatever variety of tired old writer you become. <laughs> because we do tend to die with our boots on. So... <laughs> You know, one of the things I, that, too, is that um, the rules, did you write them down and 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 say, okay, in advance, this is the way this works, this is the way this works, this is the way this works? Or did you uh, 
just like internalize them and think about them and dream about them and keep them all wrapped up in your head and let the creative process di dictate how they worked. Well, it's closer to the second because I, I kind of cheated. I just let the characters tell me what the rules were, <laughs> which sounds crazy. It, it, it does. It sounds completely bonkers, but that's what happened. I would, I would be thinking about something like on my morning run, I would be thinking about a particular plot point and feeling my way toward the next scene and be like, why is it like that? Why, why are you doing that? And the character will, would reply, oh, well, X, Y, Z, this is why. Or in the case of Dima, I'd be like, oh, why don't you write and find out? So <laughs> he's got a very particular voice, does Dima Cognette's. Yeah, it's interesting too. Yeah, because you hear the accents. I I didn't even think about this, but it's interesting to think that as I read the book, I heard the different accents of every character. Did you write them thinking about the accents, about like some actors saying them or using them? I heard them. Yeah, I I heard them in. Part of being a writer is listening to how people talk in order to to create dialogue. A dialogue is tricky. It's one of the most difficult things to do as a writer because you not only have to well, I, I could go I could go on for how much of a lecture do you want on dialogue? <laughs> well, no, well, let's let's go. Let's see your about dialogue. So dialogue. So ideally, any sentence in a book must do three things. Ideally, it must move the plot along, tell you something about the character, and tell you something about the world the character inhabits. Okay? So if you can do two out of three, maybe 40% of the time, you are a genius and need no writing advice from me ever. So this is the ideal. Usually not not achieved until rewriting, lots and lots of rewriting, which is where the, a lot of the magic happens. So that's what we aim for. Now, dialogue also has an additional stricture. It has to obey some of those, but it also has to bear a passing resemblance to how people talk, but without the ums and the uhs and the fillers and the, and the body language and tone and all that. So dialogue is laboring under a lot of constraints. So the thing that I did to teach myself whatever mastery of dialogue that I have was kind of eavesdropping. I would go to a public place. I would pay my, my toll, you know, for a coffee if I was sitting in a coffee shop or, you know, buying something from a store if I, if I was there. And I would listen to people talk as they were out in public. What is this person saying? What is that person not saying? So being out in public and listening to how people actually talk and communicate is I think one of the most valuable things a writer could do to teach themselves about dialogue. And then you have to go home and apply all that and clean it up. And uh, I have the, the great gift of being able to physically hear the characters. Like I said, there's a lot of, there's a lot of quasi hallucination in my creative process. <laughs> So I, I hear the the character talk, and then I try to put that into the the words and the rhythm that will get it across to the reader most clearly. And there, now you've had my lecture on dialogue <laughs> condensed down into the cliff notes. Uh, that was wonderful. You know, I'm looking at the books on the shelves behind you. I'm wondering how <laughs> much how much book book learning you, you engage in as you read this. Did you make this all up or were there are there like uh do you read like nonfiction about uh tarot cards or about gods or about the creation of the Greek myths? I have been reading voraciously for most of my life. I, I think yeah, I, I, family lore has it that I, I learned to read very, very young. And I, I wrote my first story in second grade because I was angry at the way a little golden book had ended and I, I, I was going to do it right. So ever since second grade, I've, I've been doing this. I don't really watch a lot of television. I, I watch some movies, but mostly what I do is read. And my head is this giant cauldron of stuff that gets thrown in all the time. And then occasionally something useful for a book pops out. What you see behind me is mostly my reference library. Uh, and there are a lot of the research that I had to do for this was I, I went back and I read on uh, Russian, the Russian prison system, 
um, Stalin's gulag and how it morphed into the current prison system and the the thieves code, the thieves ways and prison tattoos and all that. And that was tremendously informative for Dima, uh, naturally. Um, and I did, I read, I reread a lot of the Slavonic folklore that I had. Um, but mostly when I'm writing a book in a certain genre, I tend not to read anything in that genre for fear of poisoning the well. What I tend to read, especially when I'm, I've got two or three projects going in different genres, is history, nonfiction and, and military history. I read a lot about World War II and the Eastern Front because I'll never write about it. And I can read nonfiction without the editor inside my head going, oh, I would do it this way. I would do it that way. Actually, this gives me another story idea. Go write this down. You know, It's not very restful to do that. <laughs> You know, too, um, as I read this, I wondered, did you travel to some of these places? You have a map on the inside of the book, which shows us the entire journey that your character is going to take, although we only get about halfway there. Mm -hmm. um, did you go to all those places? And I didn't know, is there a place, Deadwood, South Dakota, is that a real place? Deadwood is a real place. Deadwood is a real place, but I don't think you will be able to find Nelbani's Diner there. Um, some places in there are real. Uh, I, I'm not sure if Hardesty is real. I don't think Hardesty is real. I think I based it on another small town. I have traveled to a lot of places that were in this book um, or in this duology, but confession, I hate travel. I like staying home. So Google Maps and and readers and friends in other places who who could tell me like if, if uh, like right now I'm writing a book that's set in Vegas and my writing partner's husband comes from from Vegas. So I'm picking his brains constantly like what does it smell like there in September and he's like Lily why do you ask me these things? So, but no, I did a lot of planning for Nat's route. One of the things you will notice looking at the map is that it's a figure eight. It's an infinity symbol. And she does. She she goes across the continent in an infinity symbol because that is part of her growing into a god. It's uh, it's part of what Summer, oh, I, I don't know. Oh, you haven't met Summer yet. She's in the next book. Summer says to, to Nat, who is an incarnation of spring, she's like, oh, you're on your restoration tour. You know, oh, this this is something we all do. And Nat's like, great. Nobody told me. Wonderful. Fabulous. You know, that's one of the interesting aspects of Nat's character, I think, is that she's been deliberately, um, you know, underinformed by her mother about what all this happens was that a decision you made with the character from the beginning, or did you think about having her come in into this, you know, knowing uh, much of the mythology that you had to create? And had you created all the mythology for this when you start, started? Some parts, some parts I had to discover as I was going on. Some of, like, like Ranger's horse I had to discover going on. I knew that he had some form of conveyance, but I, I didn't quite know what it was. And Nell, Nell Bonnie actually surprised me. Uh, so I knew what was going to happen as soon as I started writing the book. The moment I started writing the first scene, I knew how it ended. And between those two bookmarks, there were there were things in the middle that I didn't know, but it, it was very much like being on a road trip. You're driving down the road and you see a sign that says, you know, world's largest ball of twine. And you you think about the state of your bladder and the state of your snacks in the cooler. And you're like, okay, I can, I can do that. I can take that detour. Let's go. So uh, did you see the world's largest ball of twine? I have not seen the world's largest bowl of twine yet. That's that's going to have to wait for when I'm dragged out of my house resentfully on some trip or another. But another thing about that is that Maria keeps Nat in the dark, partly because that's part of Maria's plan for what she wants to do. And second, because that is something that happens in abusive households and abusive relationships. There's the gaslighting. There's the the bringing you as, as an abuse victim into a space where the normal rules don't apply and all the outlandish things that an abuser does to you, nobody else would ever believe because they do sound outlandish. They are deliberately engineered to be as bizarre as possible to break you down. So that was part of that dynamic too. And I unfortunately have a lot of experience with that. So every book is kind of an exorcism in some ways, uh, but these were a little little deeper exorcism than others. 
you know that that's an interesting take when you, the what was the decision to split the, this into two books like i mean because it's seems like a very continuous story yes it's it's in reality it's one big book but the the publisher split it up into two for for various reasons which we discussed and and i said yes fine that that's all right because you know the market the exigencies of the market i am pretty fortunate that when i start a book or a series i can tell it generally how long it's going to be so when a publisher says how long is this going to get i can say oh two books five books seven books this is a trilogy this isn't this is a, a trilogy plus like the the bannon and claire books so it's it was kind of a push pull but yes i wrote it all as one big novel and then my editor and i had to kind of decide where to put the dividing line which was not easy i i imagine so so um that that's really interesting do you think that you might return to this uh, these characters in this story it seems like it would even not having finished the, the the whole super long book um it seems like it, it would be something that would uh, merit and reward a, a return i have no plans for that you you are not the only person to ask me that uh, i think a uh, he was doing another interview with Fountain Books and the, the lady at Fountain Books said, you know, how many more books are we going to get? Oh, you know, I've only got the second one in August. So I don't rule it out. But I think when you get to the end of Nat's story, you will find that the that the the story has reached a natural resting place. On the other hand, it is the greatest possible compliment for a reader to say, I love this world so much. I, I want to go back to it. Where's more? Give me more. Like my little Grinch heart grows three sizes upon hearing that. So I do not rule it out because I have gone back to, to other worlds uh, that I, I thought were done. But there's no plans as of yet. You uh, write more than one book at a time. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I am at my happiest when juggling at least three projects, you know, one paid project, one serial for my subscriber, uh, like a paid project for a publisher and then a serial for my subscribers and then something just for me. Now, with the pandemic over the last few years, there were times when I could only work on one at a time and that absolutely killed me. I'm back to juggling two at a time and I'm thrilled and I cannot wait until my energy level gets to the point where I can write three at a time again. <laughs> Will we ever see any of these other, like the subscription uh, pieces? Uh, how does that work? Oh, even? absolutely. Uh, well, so so tell us, how do you decide what to write for your subscribers? And how, how does that work? I mean, is that oh. just a, well, a single have, fountain? I have so many stories. <laughs> They're just slopping out of me, as you can no doubt tell. Um, you know, ideas are cheap. Story ideas are cheap. What's expensive is the the time and the discipline to sit down and bring them to fruition. So I can look at a story and, and say, okay, this has the legs to get it to the finish line. I can invest in this. There are snippets that just go on the compost pile or things that are just for me that will never be finished you know, for home consumption. So there's a process that I go through with uh, the first serial that I did. Oh, what was the first? I think the first one was Road Trip Z, where I, I said to my subscribers, hey, I'm going to add another tier. I'm going to do a serial and I think I'm going to do it in a zombie apocalypse. What do you think? And they, you know, there were several versions of, you know, shut up and take my money. So I did it. And then I had to plan ahead for the next serial, which was Robin Hood in Space. And then I had to plan ahead for the, the current one, which is Hell's Acre, which is kind of Assassin's Creed mixed with the Da Vinci Code and set in a Victorian London where, the, you know, Christianity never brought down the Roman Empire. And so we're just about at the end of that one. And I'm announcing a new serial in June. So there's a process between me and my subscribers where I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. Sign up for it if you think it's great. And they do. I am fortunate to have a core of, of, of people, of fans who kind of believe in, in what I do, which I'm as surprised as anyone. I'm constantly looking around going, why are you following me? I have no idea where I'm going. I'm just over here, you know, throwing these stories over the wall and hoping they get to somebody. So 
that that's kind of how the process works. And now that I've started the serials, I have to keep doing them because people are expecting them from me. You know, the readers are expecting them and they've paid their money. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, the deadlines, you know, they concentrate the mind wonderfully. <laughs> now, uh, you've written in many genres. Uh, do you plan to expand into others yet? Oh, I don't think I've met a genre that I haven't liked, really. The, okay, so confession, I just write the story and figuring out the genre it's in comes later. I get possessed by this story. I write this weird little thing and then I'll you know throw it over the fence to my agent and say, what is this? And so my agent has to be kind of a story biologist and be like, oh, oh, these, these are the genres. This is where we'll aim it. So... <laughs> I, I don't know. They just come out that way. And then we find the way we find the place to put them in the taxonomy later. Now I understand more about how the platypus was created, you know? <laughs> I, I really like that idea of a story biologist. And so you're you're kind of like the 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 crisper of stories. Yeah, sort of. You know, I I look at a genome and think, wow, that could use a little fiddling with and you know, one drunken night in the lab. And then here I am, I have this portal fantasy, you know, which did not happen quite that way. There was a, a Google hangout where we were all writers and everybody else in the room was inebriated. I was the only sober one. And then we had this discussion that led to a, a novella about a were kangaroo that I wrote. And if any of them are listening, girls, you know where you are, you owe me your books. <laughs> I I have to say I've heard of many were animals. A were dinosaur I've heard of. I've read a book about a were dinosaur. I've never heard about a were kangaroo. It sounds fairly scary. Kangaroos are are not friendly yeah, crit critters, well, are they? He's sort of a himbo, though. Our were kangaroo is sort of a himbo. And and this started with the the Australian in the room telling us about the the thriving trade in kangaroo animal parts as tchotchkes, like a certain part of a, a kangaroo's anatomy made into a, a can opener. And it's what you're thinking, yes. So she's telling us about this and everybody's laughing. I'm like, oh, wow. What about the were kangaroo? Like, you know, how does that happen? She's, she says generally poachers. And I'm like, oh, what if a poacher runs across a were kangaroo? Like a were kangaroo, like dead drunk out in the middle of nowhere. So that that's how this all started. The were kangaroo loses a very important part of his anatomy and has to go on a quest to regain it. Uh, that's a whole new spin on tie me kangaroo down, boys. <laughs> <Yeah. that> I... <laughs> well, he has to go. He has to go to. He goes to his friend Petey the echidna, the were echidna, who says, "Okay, I know a witch in Los Angeles who owes me a favor." So he goes to Los Angeles and runs across Sugarbell, who's a, a a witch who, you know. Now she has has this were kangaroo who's full of testosterone patches showing up on her doorstep saying, "Can you help me, mate?" So, and and then there are you know demons. So, it was a fun time, and and they all owe me their books because I wrote mine. I've been speaking with Lilith Saint Crow. Her new novel is Springs Arcana. Thank you for joining me, Lilith. This has been a blast. You, I'm, I'm sorry it ended on that kind of weird note. <laughs> Not me. I thought it was really fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I have had a lovely time. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.